Hi, welcome to Reverb, Episode 2, The Politics of Security. I'm Calvin Pollock. And I'm Alex Helberg. How's it going, Alex? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Calvin? I'm pretty good. Are you feeling secure? I, yeah. I don't know. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Whenever I have to speak in public or like speak into a microphone, I always get a little a little insecure. So, I mean, it helps that, that this week's topic was so, you know, directly focused on the concept, a concept like security. I'm already feeling a lot more confident uh, and a lot more, you know, at home. It's assuaging my fear already. So. Well, that's good because uh, it's important to derive your strength from demonizing uh, an other. <laughs> And if you want me to be that other on this episode, hey man, just, you know, just, that's, just let me know. That might happen. You know, if you if you find if you find yourself becoming the target of a lot of my ire, you'll just know that I'm doing that to reinforce my own security. Yeah, and so. that it's helping you in the long run. It is. And yeah, that's what matters. exactly. Okay. Well, I'm glad that we're on the same page there. Okay, at least. Great. So, <laughs> so uh, on today's episode, we have an interview with Patty Dunmeyer from Kent State University on her writing on the politics of security. We'll also be hearing from our social media and publicity correspondent, Ryan Mitchell, who spoke with attendees at Reverb's launch party on March 1st about their thoughts on the power of language in society and politics and the kinds of topics they find most frustrating and intriguing. And I think we wanted to start off here by talking about our own kind of perspective as we, on the one hand, talk to Patty and also do our own uh, readings we're talking and, about politics, folks. We get a little political on this episode. Yeah, we're going to get political, and, and we wanted to just, right from the get-go, um, kind of state our commitments and, and give justifications for them from a kind of popular academic point of view, mm-hmm. uh, which is the point of view of the show. So for, for my purposes, a really useful concept for framing how I think about political discourse is critical discourse analysis, which is a, a discipline in uh, linguistics and rhetoric and um, communication. And the fundamental point of view of critical discourse analysis is that there are social problems in the world. So starting just right from the get-go, foundationally, there are social problems in the world and that we as academics have the uniquely privileged ability to investigate those social problems and how they're enacted through public language through public discourse. And so uh, for me in this episode, two particular social problems that I'm going to be interested in analyzing with Alex, with Patty Dunmeyer, are number one, uh, the social problem of the U.S. military increasingly proliferating its presence in various countries throughout the world. I view that as a social problem. Mm -hmm. And the second is the increasingly tense and deteriorating relationship between the United States and Russia to nuclear armed powers. Not a, not a good thing in my yeah. view. Yeah. Um, so what, what's your take, Alex? On- yeah, I, I, I agree in a, in a lot of sense. I think that, you know, you, you and I, we have a similar politics when it comes to something like uh, intervention, especially as, as regards uh, military intervention in other, uh, in other places around the world. I, I also, so I agree with it from that standpoint, and I think critical discourse analysis, particularly, you know, we talked a little bit in episode one about moving away from this conception of studying rhetoric as just be about like, ooh, let's take a look at who's lying. Let's pick apart all these these insidious arguments. We were trying to get away from that. Well, well, we're going right back there. I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're going back to, you know, the study of something where, you know, communication that has potentially deleterious effects on the world. Right. Uh, and we're going to give some specific rationales for why we think that might be 
here in the episode too. I also think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, coming from more of a rhetorical theory standpoint, the opinion that we're that we're giving voice to here is kind of uh, it's it's challenging major assumptions that exist across the political spectrum, uh, particularly when it comes to national security. Uh, there often seems to be this this kind of implicit assumption that uh, that that you know intervention is always on the table, or and yeah. that it's always you know the number one uh, sort of you know w- without regard to any sort of like diplomatic solutions or any other kinds of you know doing politics uh, on a global scale. It, direct intervention of one sort or another is often the thing that is uh, that is jumped to immediately, and this again concerns both Republicans, Democrats, liberals, and conservatives. But there's also you know there's also anti or non-interventionist uh, people who have those kinds of politics that say, well, maybe we should take a step back and investigate these other kinds of uh, other options that are on the table. And what we're going to see in both our conversation with Patty and our own analyses is that. These security discourses, they often do serve to shut down other possibilities. Precisely. So, yep. And that it, in itself it, is, is not good. <laughs> exactly. So it's not just that we're, we're presenting other possibilities, but we're, we're interrogating the ways in which this one possibility that we're routinely, repeatedly shown through, through popular discourse actually shuts, shuts down other possibilities. So um, without further ado, I guess let's go into our interview with Patty. So welcome, everybody. Uh, Today, uh, we're sitting down and talking with Dr. Patricia Dunmire, uh, Patty Dunmire, who is a professor of English at Kent State University, uh, the author of a number of scholarly articles and book chapters, as well as the 2011 book, uh, Projecting the Future Through Political Discourse, The Case of the Bush Doctrine. She's on campus here today to give a talk titled uh, America's Most Precious Resource, Futurity, National Identity, and Foreign Policy. Welcome, Patty. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I think we wanted to start off asking you if you could tell us a little bit about your prior work, um, specifically on national security discourse. So what kinds of events, uh, speeches, and situations have you analyzed in the past, and why? what's drawn you to national security as an area of policy discourse? Right. Yeah. So I was very interested in some of the news reporting on the, for, on the Gulf War uh, back in the early 90s, and I looked at media coverage and came up with this idea. So the background of that was I had been out of the country when Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And when I came, was flying back into the U.S. and came through London, they were searching everything. They took out my cassette tapes and were looking in there, and I was like, what is going on? What's all this security about? And what, what intrigued me was how I was so unaware that anything had happened, and all of a sudden the, the country's getting geared up for war. And it's like, how does that happen? Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'll look at this New York Times and Washington Post and started looking at the reporting. And it's like, well, this Iraq invasion of Kuwait is a, is a big deal. And it turns out that wasn't really what they were reporting on. They were reporting on a projected event of Iraq invading Saudi Arabia. So I got very interested in, oh, they're talking about the future, and that's not what news is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to tell us what, what, had, what had happened. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to realize that I was interested in the discourse about the future. That's where it all started. I've always been interested in politics ever since I was a, a kid. I was the youngest of four children, and I don't think my mom wanted to watch Sesame Street, so we watched the news in the morning when I was at home and yeah. um, that kind of thing. So, so yeah, why am I interested in foreign in national security? I just think after 9-11, you know, again, 9-11 was another moment where it seemed like 
the country had been making a certain amount of progress, and particularly like Seattle 1999 had happened, and you had Turtles and Teamsters together again, you really felt like, okay, the labor movement's moving, and uh, all those kinds of things in the right direction. And then 9-11 happens, and it's like, okay, all bets are off, they're going to start cracking down, and there's going to be, you know, this hypersecurity. And so there's that, just living in it and, and having to, to think about it. I, I came, I grew up basically in the Cold War, and uh, and that had a huge impact. And so so I'm interested in going back and looking at that discourse and thinking about, um, you know, how did they construct this all-encompassing fear? And when you're looking at contemporary issues, it seems to me having a historical perspective is really important. Um, Absolutely. The, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, so I've gone back and forth between being interested in post, the post-Cold War moment and then also getting back at the beginning of the Cold War and seeing how those two moments talk to each other, get reproduced, that sort of thing. Yeah. So. Well, and, and you mentioned um, Seattle protests mm-hmm. and you know, how, how things sort of generally, like the Overton window shifted after 9-11. I, I wonder, how do you think about the connection between national security mm-hmm. discourse and the political spectrum writ large? Mm-hmm. Is that part of what draws you to it? Is that, is, is kind of how it's a, a way of seeing or thinking about the political spectrum writ large? Yeah, I mean, I think national security issues isn't a party issue. I mean, right. they all seem to be saying more or less the same thing. Yes. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't discriminations between maybe how Obama talked about it and how Trump does that sort of thing. But um, in terms of the work I've done, there's overarching themes that just keep getting reproduced, that sort of thing. So, so I think there is this sort of singular voice about, you know, what kind of security, why we need security, all those kinds of things. But I guess what I'm asking is, do you, do you think there's a sense in which discourses of, about security also have very important implications for domestic issues like labor? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would think so. I mean, I, you know, I suppose in some ways it's about clamping down on resistance, clamping down on criticism of, you know, sort of how the world works and what the country does and those sorts of things. I mean, after 9-11... You know, you weren't supposed to criticize. You're supposed right. to be patriotic, and we had to come together as one. That's always a trope. When we're going to war, um, in the lead up to the Iraq War, we read the Post Gazette, and all the editorials are like, "We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do this." The day the bombs dropped, they said, "Okay, we've got to come together. There's there's no more time for discussion," and that just seems bizarre to me. <laughs> so I think there's I think there is that impulse to sort of quash, not quash resistance, but constrain resistance, to constrain alternative voices, and, but those are moments when they're most needed, and I, and I think we may be seeing more now in the age of Trump that, that we can't be expected to speak with one voice, and that people who maybe hadn't thought about, that we need to keep still fighting for progressive issues and that sort of thing, maybe that complacency is gone now that we've got, you know, the progress, quote-unquote progress we've made with Obama, and I put that in, in quotes for lots of reasons, um, isn't something that we could just expect was going to continue that sort of thing. 
So. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and I'm glad that we're, you know, that we're thinking about, mm-hmm. uh, as you mentioned, these sort of contemporary events in the context of, pa- of past events, as, you know, history repeating itself, mm-hmm. and we're sort of observing these patterns sort of recurring yeah. over time. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit more specifically about, you mentioned specifically Cold War era mm-hmm. and post-Cold War era security right. discourses. You mentioned in some of your articles mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that we've read that there was a sort of shift in the ways that, uh, the, way that the U.S. was conceptualized mm-hmm. as a state, as sort mm-hmm. of a player on the national mm-hmm. stage. Could you talk a little bit more about what's right. that, that shift that you saw emerging right. Uh, right. in those periods? Yeah. So what's interesting at the end of World War II is the way the nation's leaders see their role on the global stage. Mm-hmm. And, and so in one piece that I wrote, I talked about the change in metaphor. So it had been the case that the country was sort of understood itself for the leaders as, as the sanctuary of democracy. Mm, that yes. this is where people come to and they you know can live a democratic life. But after World War II and you know the end of the British Empire and, and decolonization, there's a, there's a shift in the metaphor to a powerhouse. The idea that you know we are going to exert our influence out in the world, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. And so, and, and I'm not saying that we weren't interventionist and expansionist before that, but it's a very it seems like an important moment to think about how do we imagine what we're doing, that sort of thing. So, and it, it, I think it goes along with this shift of, you know, America as this isolated nation. I mean, one of the things that, you know, the colonists and the founding fathers talked about was like America is a special thing because we're new and we're physically distinct and separate from, you know, the European past, and we can stay out of those problems and do our own thing here. And so I think for years, and that notion of sanctuary, you know, sort of, I mean, Thomas Paine referred to America as a sanctuary where people go, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, you've got technological changes, and time and space are different, and so now, you know, we need to start thinking about what we can do out there, and sort of extending, there's actually a term, extending our security perimeter ever mm-hmm. more broadly, um, that sort of thing. So that's a shift. And so now there's talk about, and this is like Clinton era, end of World Cold War stuff, about integrating the global environment into sort of not the American system, we wouldn't call it that, but mm-hmm. sort of the you know dominant political economic system. And we would probably call it the global system. Right, right. Yes, right, yeah, right that's, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, and that's the kind of the important, uh, right. really the compelling part of, uh, or one of the most compelling parts of your work is that it really matters how we frame these things, right, that right. the way that we talk about these right. issues has implications for uh, the ways that these eventually become enacted in policies right. and, you know, strategies for, right. you know, uh, diplomacy or, right. or uh, military strategies and right. things like that. Right. Um, so, and, and to that end, could you also talk a little bit more about some of the things that you analyze, mm-hmm. some of the texts or some of the specific instances of discourse where we could sort of see this change right. emerging in, in policy discourse. Right, right. I've looked at uh, the National Security Council Resolution 68, which is, mm-hmm. along with um, Kennan's long ta- telegram, the key, one of the key documents that sort of mapped out what Cold War policy was going to be about. And I've looked at that in the context of Henry Luce's The, the, uh, the American Century. And, right. And what's really... I mean, it's, it's great to sort of go into some of these documents, and I think that's partly why I like national security stuff, is you go in it, and you're, you sort of don't know what's there, and you're sort of naive, and then all of a sudden you see that they're just saying out 
straight that you know we want to control the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. They don't, they don't quite say that they want yeah. we want to shape the world in a way that accords with American values. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I remember doing a couple of conference presentations where I was talking about some of this language, and this might have been more Dick Cheney and, and the neocons. Right. Um, I remember saying one thing in particular. I can't remember what it was, and somebody in the audience gasped. And so it wasn't like you didn't, you didn't have to analyze. You just said, you know that this is what they say? <laughs> right. Things, just know? pointing it out is sometimes right. yeah. almost enough. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so you, so you read that, and then you read these documents, and they'll say, you know, and in a lot of the analysis of the Cold War is about the policy of containment and how we have to contain, had to contain uh, the Soviet Union. But there wasn't much talk about the fact that we articulated in those documents this expansionist agenda, that we need to shape the world you know, in a way that, that suits us, and um, and of course it's talked about in a rhetoric of universal values, and this is good for everybody, that's not talked as, as imperialism. And, and then it says, you know, and we would do this even if there wasn't a Soviet Union. So so then, you know, it's like, okay, what what's going on here? Um, and so you can see really the use of that evil other as the, the, the way to legitimize this expansionist um, project. So that, you know, stuff has been very interesting and the, what I'm going to talk about today is this theory called modernization theory, mm-hmm. um, which you know I just happened upon. I was in San Francisco and saw a book on the shelf, and it said "Mandarins of the Future." And I was like, anything with the future, and I grab it. And, right. Yeah. And I learned about this, you know, this theory about how to develop um, underdeveloped countries, mm-hmm. um, and that's amazing stuff. I mean, it, it's it's about helping people and all those and sharing the benefits of our technology and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but. But it's really uh, striking stuff. So, so I've looked at that. I've looked at you know national security strategy documents are interesting uh, to look at, and I've tied more recent ones back into the post Cold War era. I mean these these moments of of change or supposed change, um, you know historical ruptures or whatever, where people are like, okay, what comes next? So after World War II, what comes next? Um, after the Cold War, you know what do we do? And I've looked at Bush and Clinton, both Bushes and Clinton and Obama's national security strategies, again, to think about how do you talk about, I mean, part of, part of the issue is continuing a future that's very much in keeping with the present. And, right. mm-hmm. um, and so moments of change call into question the status quo and right. might be a moment for other ideas, that sort of thing. So it seems to me that a lot of the discourse and frenzy is around, okay, how do we control this, how do we contain this kind mm-hmm. of kind of ruptures. Um, so I think those are really interesting sort of discursive moments to look at. Yeah, and it's and it's fascinating too that you mentioned, uh, especially for something like modernization theory, mm-hmm. but I would imagine for a lot of other mm-hmm. policy discourse too, mm-hmm. it's often couched in a lot of these values that mm-hmm. would seem to be sort of uh, universal mm-hmm. or, you know, universally positive, right? right? right. Like we are right. all about human right. rights and we're right. about helping right. people right. and about, uh, you know, again, right. this the, uh, I, I guess, would you call it a metaphorical idea of an underdeveloped nation right. or sort of a, a, a framing right. of a country as being either developed right. or underdeveloped? Right. It, it seems like that framing is all about, oh, we're actually, we're going out and we're helping mm-hmm. people. Right. And right. yet that seems to be, that there's not all that's at play there. Right. So I guess right. what other what other things in the discourse can we notice that's, right. you know, that might be a little bit more, a little bit less, uh, you know, irenically uh, positive and maybe a little bit more pernicious? Right. And you were asking earlier about how some of the sort of strategies have changed, and, and I was just right. thinking about this yesterday. So, mm-hmm. you know, it used to be developed, underdeveloped, first world, third world. And I th- think since the end of the Cold War, 
maybe a little bit before, there came there became this notion of zones, one a zone of democratic peace and a zone of chronic trouble. Mm -hmm. um, and so you don't talk in terms of development, underdeveloped. You talked about these areas, these zones, and and you know which one is going to again sort of extend itself into the future. Um, who's going to migrate? Which zone is going to migrate into which other zone? Right. Um, that kind of thing. So, so I think when you're referring to parts of the world as zones of chronic trouble, right? That's pretty that's pretty amazing discourse. So yeah, I mean, most of the, I mean, in terms of stuff I look at, m most of the really awful language is a tr is attached to you know, our enemies, right, right. that they want to destroy and they want to revert and they are tyrannical and all those kinds mm -hmm. of things. And how do constructions of space and time play into right, that, right. play into that threat construction right. and, like, self-other construction? Right. So, yeah, so I, I've been thinking about um, Fairclough's concept of space-time and he gets it, you know, there's a legacy to that idea. But when we think about, so, so construals of space and time aren't, they aren't natural phenomenon, they are socially constructed, they are socially contested, and they are uh, a rhetorical resource for legitimizing ideas about other people and our own policies and our ideas and that sort of thing. And I've, and I've been thinking about that in terms of the us-them dynamic. And it seems like a lot of times when we talk about us and them, we identify us and them in terms of behaviors and values and moral dimensions and things like that. But there's also this notion of space and time is important to that. You know, we, we distance ourselves from others by putting them literally in distant spaces. And, uh, and so if they're farther away from us, we don't know much, as much about them. They can be sort of created as, or characterized as being scary, different, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things. Right. But then there's the temporal part of that. And this is, you know, Said and, and Michael Shapiro and um, Fabian talk about time having this signifying function. So so it seems to me, so I've got this argument that, you know, the, the future is this privileged space and that you can you can locate different people on different moments on a temporal trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so one way of othering people is to put them farther back in time or in a different temporal space. And so in right. a lot of the, de I mean, that's what the development discourse does mm -hmm. and that's what a lot of, I mean, I haven't looked at, at more contemporary discourse on terrorism, but it's, it's a similar kind of thing. These are, you know, not, these are not, these people who are afraid of modernity want to bring it down, all those kinds of things. And so basically, you know, we can claim the future and then the idea is that we will give the future to them, that sort of thing. But they're a problem because they're past. And they're a problem because of their pastness, the fact that they are in this zone of chronic trouble where they haven't learned modern ways, um, that threatens our future. I mean, part of my argument is that for example, with the Cold War, it wasn't necessarily a physical threat so much as it was a threat about the future and what the future right. of the post-World War world would be. So. Welcome to Reverberations, a new on-the-ground segment where I, Ryan Mitchell, go to the streets and ask people their rapid-fire associations to important keywords from each episode. These responses are unrehearsed glimpses into how real people engage with loaded concepts in all their complexities and idiosyncrasies. In this inaugural segment, I asked guests at Reverb's launch party to share their views on the political power of language and explain the ethics of language analysis.
language is embedded and a part of every power structure and uh, semiotic act of meeting making in politics and in every single part of our social relations and institutions. And I think language, as of late, has been mobilized uh, to kind of highlight contradictions of capital and uh, obscure uh, relations of uh, oppression within every single arc of uh, society and institutional uh, apparatus. So, for example, I feel like America as uh, an ideology, as an imperial ideology, mobilizes the language of the free market system, of bootstrap ideology, and basically obscures every single social relation and economic relation between classes, between people, between genders and sexualities, and, and race as historical and social categories uh, in this country. And a good example could be anything from like believing in the free market as divorced from those social and historical relations, um, and our welfare system, our healthcare system, uh, our reproductive rights, every single part, every intersecting issue of those social and economic relations is obscured by language in its contradictions. But I think we can mobilize language in terms of justice uh, and human rights that should be available for every person regardless of uh, their position in society, which seems pretty straightforward, but I think we've mobilized language to obscure that fact over and over again. But like, as, as us, we're forced to interpret these claims that scientists make, that other people make, and and that can happen in many different ways. And so if, if we leave a, a democratic society, people are always going to be making making claims, and we're always going to have to be evaluating the, the, the truth of those claims in some way or another, and an orientation toward understanding the, the, the way that rhetoric is used to make those claims will help us better understand you know, how, how information can be used to manipulate us, what kind of claim um, is more likely to be perceived as true, and when, what kind of claim maybe is more true. Where I think that there is, and I will try not to use too much jargon here, um, something, something about speaking uh, the truth uh, that that is attractive to people. Like I think I think human beings, not to necessarily ascribe a teleological function to them, but human beings in general, um, in their in their. Dasein in their in their purest theological form uh, want to speak their truth to a certain extent, and that truth may not necessarily be universal, or may not necessarily be professed in the same way by everyone. But I think that most humans have a genuine desire to speak that truth, and so even the sophist that is trying to argue two sides of the conversation might still be aiming toward that broader goal. That through deliberation, um, that through sort of antagonism deliberation where you, you engage with both sides of the argument that you can come at, toward or move toward a genuine truth and I think people have different methods of achieving that um, and that we have different I don't want to say like socially constructed positions through which, through which that happens you have the professor you have the priest you have the journalist um, 
and you, you know you have your just average person talking on the street giving their opinion about a political issue but I think most people strive to achieve some form of um, genuine relationship with the words that they um, that they speak because because speaking is always a form of, of constructing and reifying your identity the different disciplines that exist especially with engineering um, I think that in the sciences we have sort of a, a interesting phenomenon that every scientific field is getting more and more specialized and while we maybe in the English department just lump it all into STEM I think each field sees itself as incredibly unique so to the point where we can even lump together you know civil engineering and mechanical engineering we have different values we have different they have different values they have different ways of meaning making they have different ways of talking they have different ways of doing things um, so I think we can gain a lot from I mean the questions at stake here right what's what's the future of many applied scientific fields if we if in our language we're reflecting this value of specialization and that feedback is then making those disciplines more and more specialized and it just keeps going and going are we ultimately going to get to a point where we're only talking to each other and no one can understand what we're saying I think there has to be I think I mean a shared vocabulary is a really interesting it's it's interesting you said a shared lexicon because I think a shared vocabulary is really important it's like when you say that word and then your friend knows that word and they both all the same like in your scheme all the same things are triggered um, it brings people together and so I think that if part of the impetus is on us in the humanities to better understand and I, I'm talking about writing here yeah, specifically yeah. so if we and teaching writing so if we understand how other people are teaching writing and talking about writing and talking about the strategic decisions that need to be made and we're not using our own ivory tower vocabulary we understand what they're saying and we're able to appeal to that and make make uh, parallels and ultimately get a kind of a shared vocabulary You think about you think about the split between literacy and orality. Uh, the kind of permanence that comes with literacy is 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 sort of like gone when you're communicating digitally. Like, what's a Twitter feed? How is that supposed to permanently communicate something, whether used politically or or socially or whatever? Um, it's this weird kind of temporary communication that's not really binding to anything. Uh, I think that we need to renegotiate our kinds of social relationships and kind of mm, reconceptualize what it means to talk to people. Uh, maybe embrace the ephemerality, I think. There are lots of people who are using the kind of non-binding uh, nature of a tweet, for example, for negative purposes, but I think that we can maybe, you know, utilize that for emancipatory things. Think of uh, uh, all of the all of the all of the organizations of people, uh, the movements or whatever, uh, that have been uh, orchestrated very, very loosely, uh, but very, very effectively, you know, via Twitter. Um, you know, any of the things that have happened recently uh, that are that I view as kind of progressive victories or good things. Um, no, I think that there's a lot of hope. Uh, I think that like anything, it's technology. I don't think that the technology determines where we're going and what we're going to do. I think that uh, we determine what we're going to do with technology.
Yeah, and I think I mean, you mentioned more contemporary discourses of terrorism, and and that really raises well one really uh, troubling question that, that we sort of thought of that we wanted to talk about with you today was this issue of the ways in which national security policy now feels just so removed from yeah. from the everyday uh, discussion, even awareness, attention of Americans. And I don't think that's necessarily a qualitative difference from the past, but it mm-hmm. certainly feels, it feels as though a lot is happening that we're not aware of. Right. And what do you make of that in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, these discursive strategies? Do the strategies change in light of that material change? Does national security discourse become less important when the policies are so removed from the attention of everyday Americans? Yeah. Or do you reject the premise? That's <laughs> I guess well, well yeah. we can we can maybe give an example of what we yeah. were thinking of. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, just to again right. contextualize this, mm-hmm. we were talking about you know there was this whole big kind of fiasco mm-hmm. with President Trump recently, mm-hmm. where he had had this phone conversation with a uh, you know with a widow whose husband was a U.S. soldier who had right. died in Niger, yeah. and uh, you know I mean there was of course the whole big splash story right. about right. He, you know he said oh right. he knew what he was getting into right. and everything. But then there was also this other question that started bubbling up, which is, wait, we have troops. We have troops in Niger. Like, what are what are we doing there? Um, And uh, you know, we have uh, somebody like uh, John Kelly who comes out and gives a statement that says, uh, essentially, I I don't have the actual quote up here, but it's you know something to the extent of we're we're in lots of places, you know, and we're you know it's kind of throwing around this this talk about you know we're we're doing this for the sort of the the security of the globe. We're doing it to keep these places stable as well. So I mean. He's giving right. a lot of the. He's using a lot of these strategies that, right. that I think that you're pointing right. out about right. about uh, you know sort of containing or, right. or maintaining a certain level right. of stability right. and security, and that you know it's kind of the U.S.'s responsibility to do that. Right. But at the but same I, time, that wasn't that wasn't being talked about right. before yeah. before right. this sort of right. leak of a, of a kind. And I guess I mean for for us as people who read we read a lot of public address scholarship mm-hmm. about right. war rhetoric, right. which tends to yeah. kind of assume that. You need to unify the public to gain right. strong public right. support, right. and it feels like the rhetoric now is less about garnering public support right. than about garnering a kind of public acquiescence. Right. Yeah, I mean, when you were asking the question, I was absolutely thinking about the Niger example, right. yeah. and, and I, you know, and I have a pretty good sense of not literally where we are, but that we are everywhere. Um, yeah. But I was stunned when I when they it was a thousand troops and I like a thousand. I you know usually hear yeah. special forces, you know few hundred, a few dozen, whatever. Right. So I, I think it, it, it doesn't make national security discourse any less important because I, I don't know that the public attends to it anyway. Mm. I mean, it, it'll come up in speeches. You'll, you know, you'll, you'll see in the national security document that Bush will be using phrasing and that sort of thing. And I don't know, I don't know how you would ever get the public to pay attention to this stuff. I mean, not mm-hmm. that the public couldn't. But you know, there's lots of pressures and all kinds of things. Um, right. So, so I do, but I do think it's important because I do think, I think they're very clear, and this has been going on, you know, for a long time. That, that yeah, that we are going to be everywhere. That we are going to be. I think they they use the language of like con- con- constable, you know, and, oh. and world police and all that right. kind of stuff. Right. And so I think looking at that discourse in terms of how they justify it is, I think, always going to be. Uh, compelling, mm. and, I, and I think it may be even more so because I don't know that. Well, we haven't declared war 
you know, since when forever. And I just right. mentioned this to my graduate students, and they, they had no idea. Yeah. But, you know, because they were saying, well, wait, if he wants to do anything, then Congress will have to do it. And I'm like, we haven't declared war. Right. And they looked at me like I was crazy. So, mm-hmm. so it may not be that, I mean, knock on wood, who knows what Trump is doing, but um, our national security isn't about waging war, it's just about constantly just being everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the, the stability is this hyper value, right? right. Yeah. You know, yeah. again, that's all about, you know, stability, status quo, and of course, it's needing stability for financial reasons, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. So, so you have stability by just tamping down, you know, this little eruption here and tamping down the eruption there. And, right. Um, you know, and it's very um, Orwellian, it's very... Uh, science fiction-y and it's really quite terrible. you know it's just yeah. it's pretty it's pretty scary stuff yeah. yeah and I mean in terms of tamping down these these mm-hmm. challenges right, right you in, in your work on futurology mm-hmm. you, you talk about the ways that um, futures research which is this kind of like research area which right. is really fascinating yeah. um, but the, the the futures research tends to assume Again, kind of that powerhouse mm-hmm. metaphor that, mm-hmm. that the West goes out into the rest right. of the world right. and futurizes right. the rest. Right. So the other like current case study we wanted to bring up mm-hmm. is this issue of the Trump campaign's collusion mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Russia. Mm-hmm. And I mean, something that occurred to me reading your work in preparation for this was that is part of what is so hot about this scandal, the idea that in this particular case mm-hmm. it feels almost as though the rest violated mm-hmm. that that assumed power relationship between the West and the rest. Mm-hmm. The idea that we've been brought into an uncertain future mm-hmm. as opposed to having controlled it yeah. right ourselves. So meaning with with Trump coming in or yeah, well, like, like the mean, outcome of the election yeah. and and we I mean we're we're going to do another segment on the show that kind of looks at the language of how people have talked about the Russia mm-hmm. scandal mm-hmm. using words mm-hmm. such as you know using language like Russia you know hacked our election mm-hmm. or right, that right. there was sort of an infiltration right. of yes. Russian influence right, uh, into right. this kind of uh, right. into this kind of thing which has this it has this notion that there's been some kind of like manipulation that we've that there's been an invasion of a sort right, um, right. so it kind of it kind of seems to be almost like a little bit of a reversal or a you know it's counteracting some of the some of the things that you talk about right. in what's what our traditional conception of, of right. west east uh, or west rest relationships right. have been right. Right. Uh, at least discursively you know put out there as you know this is what the future holds right. Right. I mean we can even think about this uh, one of the things that I really like a lot about. I actually wrote down a quote from the article, which is called, um, I believe it's uh, Knowing and Controlling the Future. We'll put a link to it uh, in the show notes. You write here, the content and implications of futurology is obscured by its discursive structure and linguistic features that help bolster its policy proposals and arguments by rendering future possibility as future inevitability. That is, the rhetorical force of interested and motivated proposals for action is achieved in part by presenting those proposals as necessitated by disinterested objective future reality. So you, we, if we want to think about disinterested objective future reality, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm remembering back to, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, you know, were following things like uh, the 538, mm-hmm. Nate Silver sort of st- statistical mm-hmm. predictions. Well, that, 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 yeah, yeah, the forecasting that had put, you know, Hillary Clinton as, you know, yeah. being uh, the, the sort of... Yeah. Right. chance right. of winning. Right. Yeah, right. which is... which well, is, you couldn't imagine it any other way. Right. right. You couldn't yeah. imagine <laughs> the, that it really could have been Trump. 
Yeah. yeah. I think that it really speaks to yeah. the extent to which, you know, this kind of future orientation right. that is often, you know, put forward through right. this sort of imagined yeah. uh, idea of, you know, well, we have the right. data so we right. can know and predict the future. Right. Right. Um, and that was just so undermined right. uh, by right. the outcomes of the right. election itself. Right. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, and I find myself thinking, um, as I do, that, okay, they're, they're going to bring them down. There, there's got to be something there. I mean, the Washington Post keeps hammering on this. Right. Like they're always talking, there's, you know, mm-hmm. they know stuff. And it's like, what am I saying? Like, they, they thought he was going to lose the election. So you, <laughs> you are yeah. all of a sudden like, and I guess part of that is an impulse to believe that things will work out. Mm-hmm. That this is a horrible thing that happened. He's a horrible person. He works with horrible people. He has mm-hmm. horrible ideas. That that can't really be legitimate, and so somehow it'll get turned around. And so right. it's that hope in the future, in a certain sense. I think the other thing that's that I've been thinking about, like with Trump, and I think that, which on the one hand, is really telling, but on the other hand, I think is maybe a positive. Is this, is this notion of a progress. I mean, I think that we right. live in a country where, where typically people think that we just keep progressing. Things yeah. always get better. And mm-hmm. It's inevitable. Um, right. Kind of teleological. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, always, it's always better. And so I mentioned earlier, I think there was this liberal complacency that, you know, nope, we are post-racial and mm-hmm. women, you know, rock and they're considered equal and we've mm-hmm. got, you know, gay rights and all those kinds of things mm-hmm. and and so you again you feel like okay finally you know <laughs> and then this happens and it just and then all of a sudden it just turns around it turns right. all of a sudden it's like no we have to remind people in the white house that the civil war and slavery were bad right. <laughs> it's right. not an honorable thing and so this notion of progress is just razor thin and and one people's mm-hmm. progress is another person's problem and and so again, it's that it's that fight over the future. This is a progressive future for some people, in a progressive moment. Other people like say, no, this is leading us down the road to fire and brimstone, that sort of thing. I think the Trump moment has really sort of blown that wide open and said, you know. And so the the positive part is that, you know, my older sister who would never have thought to do this went to the women's march in Boston because mm-hmm. oh my gosh, you know, things aren't as secure for me as I thought. Those yeah. kinds of things. So. Um, and doesn't Trump also kind of undermine this idea that the West should be futurizing the, the rest right. as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, given that yeah. Yeah. He, he he holds so many right. you know, quote unquote backwards, it's right. so right. hard to avoid using the right. metaphors right. when you right. talk about it. But he holds so many ideas that right. our kind of like dominant discourses about right. how we interface with the rest of the world yeah. assume right. uh, are no longer right. in this right. country right. anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's something I've been struggling with because I'm I'm very critical of President Obama and President Bush's and President Clinton going out and saying, you know, we we are, you know, a model of democracy and we care about others and we do these things because we want everybody to have freedom and justice, knowing that that's not why we do what we do. And uh, and then when you have an administration that doesn't even want to play that game, they don't want to think about human rights, I'm like, wait a minute. But he should be care, you know. Mm-hmm. Even though I know that they don't really care, right. there's something that I have bought into about at least symbolically we should present ourselves that way. But although I know it's hip- hypocritic to do that, yeah. You see what I mean? Like yeah. the fact that we're just you know dumping that rhetoric at all is just like oh my god. 
Yeah. <laughs> but well, maybe it's more honest this way. You know, well, I'm comfortable <laughs> with that. I don't know. That's, I that's something yeah. we struggle with. That like, definitely it's, is. It's more yeah. honest, but think about the kids, you know? Right. You're like, you're like, yeah. right. What a terrible role yeah. model. This guy doesn't even pretend to be right. yeah. a, Which a is, nice person yeah. with values. Yeah. And, yeah. Whenever I say honest, you know, people will sort of look at me funny and be like, ah, oh, well, he lies all the time. But at the right. same time, right. again, I don't necessarily want to use a word like transparent to describe it, but right. it's more, right. you know, it's, it's actually, I mean, he's kind of giving up the ghost in a certain right. way about right. the way that a lot of these uh, policies have kind of been going for a while. He's just not using the same kind of right. linguistic forms right. that a lot of the you know a lot of the discourse that right. you've studied right. does implement right. Right. to at least project that right. Uh, right. that idea that we're doing that. Right. Yeah, and like I said, I just I just don't know how I feel about that because I don't know. It's it's an interesting problem. So. Definitely. I think we wanted to end just by trying to maybe move in a slightly more positive positive <laughs> direction, just considering the potential for positive change. What mm-hmm. what do you think a, like a positive discourse of the future looks like? Because so much of your work is uh, tracking these ways in which kind of the future gets assumed mm-hmm. in discourse and then the public is implicated in tacitly mm-hmm. or, or overtly accepting that future. And mm-hmm. I mean, is it possible to use some of these strategies for good? You know, what do you see as the connection between yeah. futures-oriented discourse right. and positive change? Right. I think part of it is about, you know, the a multiplicity of voices who get to speak about the future and actually... You know, I mean, Bernie Sanders isn't the answer to all our problems, but he is a different voice, and, you know, he doesn't shy away from the S-word, you know, and he owns right. it, and he tries to explain it. I mean, we have a political system that's really constrained and very limited in terms of who can speak and all those kinds of things, but on the ground, I mean, there's, there is this thing called critical future studies, mm-hmm. um, and those folks are very much... They came out of sort of the development era and being very critical of Western efforts to, you know, bring bring them the future, so to speak. Right. You know, I think anybody that can speak about different economic models in terms of how economies can be organized, that sort of thing, I think are important. And I don't think about this much in my work, and I'm no expert, but it just seems like the technology, again, has all kinds of good, positive future potential. Yes. However, you know, it gets commercialized, it gets commodified, and all those kinds of things. And so, you know, when I was here all those many years ago, the World Wide Web was a new thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and, uh, and it was, you know, oh my gosh, this will be great, all this information, you know, blogs, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, when a a technology is that powerful, it tends to get, you know, co-opted. And, um, but but it proliferates, and, and, you know, that might be, you know, a way... I mean, it may be the case that, that it, you know, all the social media stuff is having a positive influence in terms of, you know, getting us voices from, you know, from, you know, from Cairo and, and mm-hmm. Tunisia and all kinds of places like that. Yeah. Um, but because of that, it also is a threat. So um, it's always that double-edged thing. Yeah. But it's, it's that, that it, you know, maintaining a sense that the future is contested. Right. I mean, that's yes. what I, I find really inspiring yes. about what you've written is that, mm-hmm. you know, we need to bring back that idea. Right. Right, that right. the future is a space of possibility right, right. because it really feels like right. when you talk to people right. <laughs> on yeah. a daily basis today, no right. one has a positive right. uh, view of what's going right. to happen. Everyone is just dreading right. 
uh, yeah. the next day. It's <laughs> politically. I mean. Yeah, yeah, in in a lot of ways. I mean, I think that you know that that there might be some signs of hope to contextualize when we're recording this. This is just after uh, mid midterm election, where uh, you know where. Progressive people kind of had a major windfall uh, in a lot of sort of key state elections in a lot of different places, Pennsylvania and, and uh, uh, where we're recording, Pittsburgh included. We, we need to start, I think, thinking about ways that we can project a different kind of future or a different, you know, not shy away from making claims about moral visions of the future that we want to see. Uh, because, you know, as... As somebody like, uh, you know, I think it was, yeah, Karl Rove had the sort of famous quote about, you know, we are, we're constantly creating uh, new uh, realities or, or, you know, we might paraphrase new futures. uh, And while you're, you know, analyzing those realities, we're making making new ones. Um, So I think that, uh, you know, I mean, that, that should be. That should be a pretty, you know, a clarion call to the fact that, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to start, you know, standing up and at least, you know, making those kinds of, making those kinds of claims for a future that we want to see. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. Is, is, yeah, getting people to think critically about the future, where it comes from, what can be done about it, multiple voices. See, you know, with the Hillary-Bernie thing, I Mm -hmm. mean, again, there was... Man, Bernie is freaking the Democrats out. Oh yeah. There oh, there's still kinds of things, you know. Yeah. So, one day it's don't um, litigate the 2016 primary, and right, the next day right. they're going at it and, and the next litigating day the. We're publishing the book. What happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. But again, it's one of those. It's interesting to think about a moment where discursive construction of a future inevitability that was so, you know, we, we were so sure was going to happen right. has been disrupted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, from a from a political standpoint, like it's made the climate so much more toxic and right. everything. Right. It seems that way. Right. But also much more interesting. Right. I mean, I th- and I think I think it's opened up the, right. the spaces for people to articulate things right. that, you know, that might not have been, you know, like you said, in the within the bounds of the Overton window right. before. Right. So, right. I mean, I... My, my husband is a historian, and so he's used to thinking about change and, and just sort of different historical moments. And when I would be like, oh, you know, we'll never get rid of the death penalty. That's here forever. There's no way. There's no right, way. Right. He's like, you know, you think people in, like, 1820s thought slavery was ever going to end? <laughs> and then it ended. Yeah. Right? And it didn't, didn't just end, but, but it ended. And so, mm-hmm. so we get caught up in our worlds where everything seems so certain and power is, mm-hmm. you know, um, invested in particular kinds of ways and we can't again that inability to really imagine what it would take to make things different and um, and so that's what I sort of think about when, when I mean when I feel that way and when I hear students talk that way it's like well there was a whole economic system that was completely ingrained um, and made a lot of people a lot of money yeah. and, and and the world changed so so I think you know I think that idea that it's, it's always contested and contestable is, is really important I think that's a brilliant note to end on. So, uh, again, thank you uh, so much, Dr. Patricia Dunmire, for sitting down with us, Patty. It's been wonderful having you here and talking with you. you. Uh, Again, we'll link to some of your your articles and your work uh, in our show notes. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Tune in next week for The Politics of Security Part 2, when we'll be further developing several of the themes from our conversation with Professor Dunmire through analyses of two distinct artifacts of security discourse. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's web designer is Anna Cook, and our publicity and social media team is Ryan Mitchell and Audrey Strong. 
You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.